what most people know about nutrition if they haven't done some kind of program or education or anything, or even if they have, is mostly just weight loss advice. I mean, to be honest, that's what it is, right? It's like, oh, eat this, not that, or make sure you're eating X amount of calories a day and, you know, make sure you're in a deficit if you want to lose weight or whatever it is. Or if we're talking about macros for performance, make sure you have X amount of carbs and X amount of protein, and then we just fill in the fats from there, right? So the way that I use nutrition is breaking it down, like you guys said very kindly, into a very easily digestible way. Haha, <laughs> poop puns. The big question is this. In a world of fake Instagram models and bad diets, how do real people achieve their fitness goals? We are an army of hardworking women changing their lives through fitness and health. Wherever you are at on your journey, we have the answers to how to make working out and eating well a part of your life. Join us in changing the dialogue for women everywhere. Welcome to the Thick Thighs Save Lives podcast. Hi guys, and welcome back to the Thick Thighs Save Lives podcast. I'm Kelsey. Hi guys, I'm Rachel. Ooh, I love today. Ooh, ah. <laughs> if you have ever struggled with any gut issues or you know somebody who's had gut issues, you are, this is a life jam. I'm serious. Like I was blown away. I'm, yeah. I'm blown away. Yeah. We had a really awesome guest on today. Well, we have a really awesome guest on today. Dana Monsies is a dietitian, nutritionist, and a body image coach who specializes in helping women with gut issues, burnout from a weight inclusive non-diet approach. Let's hear it for that. Yeah. I'm saying like, this is exactly what we've been waiting for. She is incredibly intelligent. So the conversation with her was mind blowing because like her philosophy just combines neutral nutrition, weight inclusive care. And she is just awesome. She was so insightful and I think that one of the things that people with gut issues struggle with most is the constant, like, we can't help you, shoulder shrugging, we don't know kind of mentality. I think that this is going to be really useful information. If you have ever struggled in, in this area, this is her, the way she teaches this and her mindset, like her approach with all of the gut issues combined with all of the other shit that goes on in diet culture. It is so now. It's so right now and it's so needed. Oh man. Yeah, I'm just excited for you guys I to hear say because enough. yeah, because she doesn't set, she doesn't do the approach where like your mind and your lifestyle is completely different for what is useful and helpful for your body. She combines them both and addresses each individual as a whole person. And that is everything right there. So hope you guys love this episode. Dana, we are so excited to have you on the podcast today and we kind of want to just jump right into it. So what drew you into the nutrition field and how did you become an advocate for women's health? Yeah, well, <laughs> so <laughs> I know big question. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I, I mean, ever since I was in high school, I've always been interested in like cooking and food and stuff. But in college, 
I, so I swim in college. I've been an athlete my whole life. And so, you know, what goes with that as a swimmer in particular is they're like, oh, you can eat whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Right. But so then in college, when you start to learn a little bit more about nutrition for sport, you know, in particular, it's like, oh, I should be eating these things and I shouldn't be eating these things. Right. And that long story short, developed into a pretty severe eating disorder and very disordered eating habits. And then that kind of stayed as I was working in politics for a few years during and after college. And then I was like, nope, I hate this stuff. Gonna leave. Went back to grad school to get my master's in nutrition. And then through all of that, started to realize that a lot of the kind of you know, for lack of a better word, prescriptions that are given in like the functional medicine, integrative health field, when you have specific health conditions are really elimination diets, right? And they're kind of handed out very similar to medicines. And so I kind of fell into this middle ground of like, okay, well, I'm seeing that we can use food as medicine. Like I later got diagnosed with celiac. I was like, okay, well, I obviously have to use food as a part of my medicine, right? But for a lot of people that I was working with in, you know, in school and then at the clinic that I worked in under a functional medicine doctor and in my own practice, a lot of people while trying to heal their symptoms with food and these elimination diets, we're developing these really disordered behaviors with food and exercise and all of this other stuff. So I kind of was like, there has to be another way to do this. And that's kind of how I landed in the niche of where I am today as working with women, primarily with like chronic fatigue, chronic stress, burnout, and primarily like a lot of gut issues who also have a history of like heavy weight control or disordered eating behaviors and teaching people how to manage all of that from a more weight neutral and neutral nutrition perspective so that you can use nutrition in a positive way, but food doesn't have to control your life to get there. Oh my gosh. Like, hello. Like there was like a gap and you totally came through with, I see a hole in the industry and I am so excited to talk to you first of all, like on a very individual, personal, selfish level, because I have so many people in my life. I'm not one of them, but I have so many people in my life that struggle with gut health. My husband is one of them. He's has, is been diagnosed with IBS, the mysterious disease of, we don't know why you have it and we don't know what it is and we don't really know how to treat it. So that's like always a fun time. And I think that so many people, I don't know, you tell me, are these, these gut issues like celiac, IBS, Crohn's, are these on the rise or are people just getting finally names for things that we've been getting all along? Is it, do you think that there's an increase? So I think it's kind of both. So when testing and diagnosis for celiac became more common, there was like a huge spike in the rate of people who actually have it because the testing was better, right? But then what also goes along with that is there's more education that's out there of like celiac could be a thing that you have. So then more people are getting tested, right? I do want to say though, I mean, especially over the past couple of years, with the collective stress level of everyone going up, right? There's a huge, huge connection between stress 
and gut issues, right? There's something called the vagus nerve and the gut brain connection. And anytime, like it's bi-directional, right? So anytime you're having issues in the gut, it's going to come up to your mental health. And anytime you're having a lot of stress issues, I mean, think about people talk about like runner's trots and stuff, you know, or before you give a presentation, you feel like you have butterflies in your stomach. That's the gut brain connection at work. So given that collectively in the world, our overall stress level has not been functioning at the way it's biologically designed to be functioning, right? You have a period of stress, chronic fight or, or fight or flight acutely, and then it goes back down and we kind of, you know, rest and digest. Those are the two, you know, nervous system modes primarily. That's not happening anymore. We're mostly living in a chronic state of sympathetic activation or chronic fight or flight, right? Which means that on top of everything else, the gut issues are becoming more prevalent because the more stress you have, there's a positive correlation with gut issues. And of course, the testing is better as well. And I think that now that the functional medicine world is becoming, you know, more prevalent and kind of, you know, noticed by people, there's a lot of kind of self-diagnosing of like, oh my gosh, I have a little bit of bloating. I must have a gut issue. When I think one of the things that I've been talking about recently is like, not all bloating is abnormal, right? Like we don't have to go to a functional medicine doctor for every little symptom that we have, but because we're all so disconnected from our bodies, we think that any symptom that we have is a problem that needs to be fixed, right? Because we don't know what's normal anymore. So I think it's like a, it's an amalgamation of like all of the things. Yeah. I, I really love how you put that because I've talked to like my friends and myself and like what a normal amount of like, for example, bloating is and like where you are, like with your hormone levels, with your stress levels, like with what you ate. So there's so many things that go into that and like figuring out like what is normal for you is not the same as like what's normal for someone else. But like also you have to have a baseline in yeah. like what is good and healthy for you. And I think that so many people are so far off their baseline that they kind of almost forgot like what it feels like to feel good and energetic and have their gut working normally. And like, you know what I mean? So it's like, it's hard to get, think of diagnosing yourself when you, you can't even really like remember your normal. Yeah. And there's a big difference for a lot of people between what is normal and what is optimal, right? So like, for example, with your husband, it's very normal to go to the doctor now and get diagnosed with IBS, right? IBS is a diagnosis of exclusion. It's we validate that you're having these symptoms and there's something wrong with you, but honestly, we have no idea what's going on, yeah. right? That's basically <laughs> what IBS is from a doctor's, um, you know, diagnosis perspective because IBS is not just like, oh yeah, like my body just, you know, doesn't digest food well. Okay. Why? What is causing that? And luckily and unluckily, right? A lot of my clients, when they go to the doctor now, you know, if they come to me in a, you know, discovery session or something and they're like, yeah, my doctor just told me has, I have IBS and like they chalked it up to stress. And it's like, okay, stress can be a very heavy component of contributing to the symptoms of IBS, but not only the symptoms, stress can be a main contributor to the underlying condition, which is causing the IBS in the first place, right? So what I find for a lot of people is that IBS is really just like a very surface diagnosis. It doesn't actually tell me as a clinician, like what's going on or what's causing your symptoms. Again, it's like IBS is, oh yeah, you're having these symptoms. I understand this and we validate this and you can have this diagnosis, but it doesn't tell me anything about why. 
It's, it's so, I think that's why so many gut issues are so frustrating to people because the gut seems to be so complex that even like doctors are not, and that's, I think the, the most frustrating thing for people is they want kind of an answer, what they want an actionable thing that they can do. And it's so hard when it's just like, I don't know, maybe you're too stressed. Like, dude, <laughs> I would calm down if my stomach calmed down. <laughs> yes. So I want to talk for a second about the importance of gut health because I think we're, like I said, like we're just beginning to scratch the surface, I think, we're people of people understanding the connection between like their gut health and their overall health. And just do you think that, have you met many women who could have potentially damaged their gut health somewhere along the way with like crash diets or exclusive way of eating? And can you just like talk about like the importance of gut health to your overall health for a second? Yes. So first, almost every single person that I have worked with ever or come into contact with that has gut issues has some kind of history of either chronic dieting, over-exercising, or disordered eating, or or an eating disorder, right? And it really can be like a chicken or egg situation, right? Because if we look at this from a functional medicine approach, if you have gut issues that suddenly start to pop up out of nowhere, of course, you know, if you go to a traditional Western doctor and they're like, oh, it's all in your head, like, great, thanks for gaslighting me, love that for me. Then you go to functional medicine and they're like, oh, okay, you have these gut issues, you should do this gut healing elimination protocol, right? Then you start to do the protocol and probably in the short term, you do start to feel better because we're moving fermentable carbohydrates, we're moving, you know, things that you potentially might have a reaction to, or for a lot of people who have gut issues, eliminating certain foods can help their symptoms in the short term because of a bacterial imbalance or SIBO or whatever it is, right? But then the problem becomes because you had some symptom relief there, even if it wasn't treating the underlying issue, you now start to believe this is the only way that I can manage my symptoms, right? So then the nervous system and the stress component comes in of if you eat, you know, something that's on your list of no foods, regardless of whether or not you have a biochemical sensitivity to that food or the bacteria in your intestines or like, whoo, party, we love cake or, you know, whatever it is you can actually think yourself into having symptoms. That is the gut-brain connection and the nervous system at work. So that's one component of it, right? And then on the flip side, you can start to develop really serious gut conditions from very restrictive eating, whether it was for the purpose of, you know, managing symptoms from an elimination diet perspective, or it was dieting or weight control, or you're doing macros, you know, for whatever it is. To give one example, which... I fucking hate this. But unfortunately, in the functional uh, fitness community and CrossFit, there's a lot of, especially for men, there's a lot of promotion of stuff like keto and intermittent fasting and everything like that, which if anyone knew anything about sports nutrition, you would know that CrossFit is a very glycolytic exercise and you can't survive on fats. Rant aside, regarding gut health specifically, if you're going super low carbohydrate, that means you're not eating a ton of different fibers. What are the main food for your gut bacteria? Prebiotics are fibers. So you can actually, by doing these different, especially low carb elimination diets, you can starve the good gut bacteria in your intestines, which creates an environment that is very ripe for pathogens to come in, whether it's 
viruses, H. pylori, you know, really severe things like salmonella, giardia, C. diff, all of this kind of stuff, but just really an unfavorable balance of bacteria in your intestines that can lead to a bunch of gas, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, get ready for all the poop terms because this is what we're going to talk about today, right? But a lot of people who are pursuing weight control or macros or restrictive diets or stuff. We're not like calm people. We tend to be like very type A personalities and everything like that, right? When you are very stressed or you're prone to anxiety, that is one of the mechanisms that can suppress your stomach acid as well. And it can slow down motility. It can slow down your production of digestive enzymes and getting them from the gallbladder or the pancreas to the small intestine, right? And I want to go back to uh, stomach acid for a second, because if you don't have enough stomach acid, that's your body's first chemical barrier against any outside invaders, right? This can be totally normal stuff like colds, you know, the flu. It can be more nefarious stuff for your gut, like H. pylori and salmonella and parasites and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So now if you're a very stressed out person, so we have low stomach acid, and you haven't been eating a lot of carbohydrates or enough carbohydrates for your gut bacteria, right? Because enough is relative. We now basically have a blank check in our intestines for whatever we become exposed to is going to come in. And that can lead to even more gut issues. But it, it's interesting because it's not the pathogen that came in itself that was the root cause of all of those gut issues, even though it's causing a lot of the symptoms now. It was whatever set the scene for that pathogen to be able to come in which is now causing even more of the symptoms. So when we look at this from a treatment perspective, of course, I mean, say we find something like H. pylori, which is way more common than you would think it would be, right? But this is an organism that takes hold in the stomach. And if you try to correct this by uh, supplementing with stomach acids with, I mean, digestive enzymes with stomach acid, H. pylori is like, ooh, we love acid. It's just going to eat that all up and further lower your stomach acid. I, well, I have to validate you, sir. I have to validate you for a second because I'm like literally blown away. Okay. Yeah. Here's the course of events. I'm not even joking. Me and my husband found CrossFit. We were extremely invested in CrossFit. We're both very type A personalities. And the gym was running a Whole30 challenge. I'm not joking. This is exactly how it went. They were running a Whole30 challenge, which we both want to participate in because we're all in. We're all in the gym. He does Whole30, and this is around the same time as we're developing our business. So it's like we were starting a business from our basement. <laughs> yes. So it, the exact two things that you said, no carbs and high fats in combined with stress. And after the Whole30, he was never, ever the same. And he, that is when all of the IBS started for him and all of his digestive struggles. And like, I can't even say how validating it is to hear that from someone because every single doctor he's told that to has been like, I don't know. I, I never heard a whole 30. I don't, I mean, sounds okay to me. Like, yeah. I mean, your doctor was probably like, so you're telling me that you cleaned up your diet and you started to eat healthier, but now you're having more gut issues. Exactly. <laughs> oh my God. I'm, he's going to love this. <laughs> well, well, I just think it's really wild because a lot of the things just like going back to what you, you kind of brought up initially was diets like keto and like very restrictive diets like that, where we talk about some of the effects that 
that those kind of like crash and elimination diets have on the body when it comes to like your hormone levels or when it comes to like how your body is metabolizing food or, you know, how it's affecting your workouts. Are you more tired? How is it affecting your sleep? That kind of things. And there is literally like the, the keto flu people talk about. And then we're still like using this as a baseline for health. And it's like the most bizarre thing. But I've never really even considered how that is affecting or setting the stage for certain bacteria in your gut. And then the transition away from some of those really restrictive diets, how you can start to see the effects of that really after. And that I think is one of the hardest things to wrap our heads around because it's almost like, okay, well, you know, I've stopped doing the thing that, you know, you said was going to be harmful. And now I'm just trying to like go on and live my life. And I'm having all of these adverse reactions. And now you kind of like go to pinpointing the things that are happening right here in the now when like there's already been a lot of damage that has been done. Or you think you have to go back to like, well, I have to eat keto again because that's when I was feeling better. Like, like you almost think you're the problem. Oh yeah. I mean, and this is like, this is the thing that tends to happen when we do these types of elimination diets, right? Because if you do low FODMAP is a really common one, right? So this is when you remove five or six different classes of fermentable carbohydrates in order to reduce the amount of symptoms that you're having. Now, for a lot of people, this can be really successful for a short term in terms of symptom relief, because if you have an overgrowth of bacteria and those bacteria are feeding on the and fermenting those carbohydrates, which is causing a lot of gas and bloating, you take away their food. Yeah, they're not going to be able to ferment anything, right? But Taking away the food from the quote bad bacteria also takes away the food from the good bacteria. So then, you know, we're starving them off. And even in all of the literature, which I don't know why most practitioners don't talk about this more, is you're not supposed to be on a low FODMAP diet for a long time. It's supposed to be a temporary relief for symptoms while we go to search for or treat the root causes of, again, why you're having these symptoms in the first place, because just pulling out the food is not going to fix it, right? And the theory behind some practitioners keeping people on low FODMAP for a longer time is they think, oh, if I just, you know, starve the bacteria of their food, then they won't be able to come back. A lot more complicated than that, right? And we can get really into the nitty gritty about like biofilms and, you know, everything like that. But one of the things that also tends to happen in light of like, okay, we do this elimination diet and, you know, I'm still not feeling good or, you know, I did Whole30 and now I feel way worse. It's like people will then, because you can get these very easily through Instagram, you don't have to have a practitioner order these is people will order food sensitivity tests, right? But there's not a lot of education of what this is actually telling you. So if you get for any of your listeners, right? Cause this is a trap that many people fall into is you get one of these food sensitivity tests, you know, one that you've probably seen on TV before. And what that's actually measuring is the IgG, which is a type of sensitivity reaction antibody that your body's producing in response to a certain food. But again, it doesn't tell you why you're reacting to that food in the first place. So you would think the logical chain of events would be, okay, I've got 27 different foods that came up on this. I'm reacting to all of this. So therefore I should pull all of these out and I won't have those reactions anymore. 
But what it's actually telling us, basically, the purport, as the proportion of foods that are showing up gets larger, what it's really telling us is we have some inflammation and intestinal permeability because no food should be able to get through to the bloodstream in the first place, right? This is a blood test. So when we think about the lining of the small intestine, it's supposed to be a barrier between the inside world of our bodies and the GI system, which really is an external environment, right? It starts in your mouth and it enter, it exits out the other side, right? Things are really just passing through aside from the nutrients and minerals and everything that we're absorbing from those foods. But the actual food particles themselves should not be able to get through that small intestine barrier, right? The epithelial layer to get through to the bloodstream to be able to show up on this food sensitivity test. So again, if you have a ton of foods that are showing up, it's not actually telling me that you have a biochemical sensitivity to those foods, especially when things come up like randomly that you don't think you have reactions to, like blueberries, you know, carrots, you know, random stuff like this. It's like, this is really weird. It's really common for most people to see proteins or things like gluten show up on this because the molecular structure of protein is harder to break down than carbohydrates and fats. So if you see beef, milks, cheese, eggs, you know, wheat, gluten, rye, like all this stuff, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That means your body's having trouble breaking down all this stuff. It doesn't mean you need to pull all of the foods out. It means we need to do some further investigating of, okay, why are all these foods coming up in the first place? Because I can guarantee you, food unless it's a food allergy or celiac disease or something like non-celiac gluten sensitivity, food is not the origin of the problem. So we can't look to just eliminating foods as the true solution. That may give you a little bit of symptom relief in the beginning, and I don't want to discount that, right? But again, it's not going deep enough. We're kind of like two levels below the surface. We need to go like seven more layers below the surface before we figure out what's actually causing me to have these reactions and these food sensitivities in the first place. Because if we don't go back and solve that, you're not going to solve the symptoms long-term. This is like blowing my mind, Kelsey. <laughs> I know. This is like blowing my mind. This is, it, it's blowing my mind, but at the same time, it makes so much sense. Like, yeah. is there 27 foods that you're really highly sensitive to? Or do you have so much damage in your gut that everything's bothering you? You yeah. know what I mean? Like, that makes so much sense. But it's like, oh, man, this is really blo- – I'm sorry. Go ahead, Kelsey. I know it's your turn to <laughs> No, I <laughs> Well, I I wanted to break it down to some of our listeners where they could kind of recognize themselves. So what are some of the more common gut conditions that you see in clients right now? And can food be utilized to heal some of these issues? Yeah. So I'll talk symptoms and then I'll talk conditions, right? So good. Yeah. I'd like for like some people like here, like, oh, that's me. Yeah. 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 Okay. So the most common things that people will come to me for are various stages of bloating, right? So this can be like, my stomach just kind of feels like there's air in there after I eat something versus if you have something like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or you probably heard it as SIBO, you can literally look like you're six to nine months pregnant with that kind of bloating. So that those are, you know, different classes. And based on the type of bloating that you have, it can give me an indication of what we want to look for in testing. Then of course, like 
constipation, diarrhea, like all sorts of loose stools. If we really want to get into it, I talk to my clients about the Bristol stool chart, which is basically like, how loose are your stools? What color are they? You know, and every time you have a bowel movement or any bowel sounds or anything that's going on with your GI system, your body is communicating something to you. Either like, yeah, this is going well or something is off and we need to, you know, <laughs> going well, this not is- going well. <laughs> Help. That's what my stomach, that's what my husband's stomach sounds like. It's like screaming for help sometimes. And I'm like, oh my God, are you okay? Because it's so loud. And this is where we go back to normal versus optimal, right? So quick PSA, right? A normal, medically normal amount of bowel movements to have every day is between one and three, right? If you're not having a bowel movement every day, that is defined as constipation. I, I wanted to tell you too, we, we have talked about this with our, we have a very large Facebook group and women are asking all the time, different questions when they start to change their diets, what happened. And I had one that really blew my mind and she wrote into the group and said, okay, so, so I haven't had a bowel movement in like two weeks. And I was like, two, two weeks. And yeah. she had just kind of like decided that it might be feeling abnormal or like that it might be, but, but I was like, guys, like we, maybe we really need to talk about like, what is a normal, what does that look like for a normal person? I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. One to three times per day and your stools should not be hard to pass, but they should not be like an oil slick. They should have a formed S shape is what it's supposed to be ideally. Right. So constipation, diarrhea, alternating, bloating, basically the Pepto-Bismol commercial are all the things that we're looking for, right? And then in terms of conditions, like I see everything from celiac disease to Crohn's to ulcerative colitis, right? Those are irritable bowel disorders, IBD. Those are going to be the most, you know, severely diagnosed ones. But then you've got IBS, which is a catch-all for everything else, right? But again, doesn't tell us what's going on. So it might be something like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. It might be a candida overgrowth, which is a yeast. It might be a fungal overgrowth. It might be just the Im- an improper or unfavorable balance between good beneficial bacteria and opportunistic bacteria, which are ones that are okay to be there in small amounts, but once they start to overgrow, can start to cause a lot of issues. But what's really interesting is most people assume when you're having gut issues, it's because there's an overgrowth there, right? Like there's too many things that aren't supposed to be there, but you can have very similar symptoms if you don't have enough gut bacteria, if you don't have enough stomach acid, if you don't have enough digestive enzymes, right? Which is really where, and this is why I became so specialized in this is I do a stool test on almost every single person that I work with if they're coming to me for gut issues, right? If somebody's coming to me for like, you know, body image stuff and they don't really have any health issues, I'm not just going to be like, well, you work with me, you have to do a stool test, you know? But again, most people aren't coming to me for gut issues. And so what better place to look than the gut itself, right? We need to get a better picture of what is the bacterial balance here? You know, like what does your lactobacillus look like? What do your digestive enzymes look like? What does your stomach acid look like? And again, when we're looking at a stool test, you're looking at all these different, you know, balance of bacteria. Are there parasites? Are there worms? Are there, you know, other scary things that aren't supposed to be there? Is there blood in your stool, for example? 
Is there undigested fat in your stool? Because again, this is basically like our digestion report card. Like what's, what's going on here, you know? And a lot of people before they have come to me, you know, my clients are, I like to say like, they're some of the smartest people I know because they've done so much of their own research, right? They've done so many different elimination diets. They're trying to figure all this out on their own and they're kind of at a dead end. And they're like, I just don't know what to do. And it's like, well, look, you've tried so many different things that just the stress of trying to figure this out on your own can be contributing to your gut symptoms, right? And that's such a hard place to be because I was the same way when I was trying to figure out all of my gut stuff. Haha, it was mostly because of an eating disorder. Joke's on me, right? But like, it's so tough and I have so much compassion for everyone who has gut issues because you do really feel like you're just throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks because it's like, you know, you do all your own research and it's like, do this gut elimination diet and don't drink water with your meals and don't use mouthwash and don't use, you know, whatever, all this stuff. And it's like, well, now I'm down to four foods and I'm still having these reactions. So what am I supposed to do now? Uh, Which is where a lot of people just go like, well, forget it. They, yeah. they honestly just go like, forget it. Like I'm, I, you know, I have a lot of friends who I, I've talked to about this too, who are just like, well, I, you know what? I eliminate nothing now because <laughs> I've tried so many different things to where I got it down to a point there that I was like, feeling like I wasn't eating anything and I wasn't getting any pleasure from food and I was still having problems with my stomach. So screw it. Oh my God. The gut people are the bravest the bravest of the people because you're so right. They just spend endless hours researching. Nobody comes to them. Like it's a very hopeless kind of doctor scene where you just go to doctor after doctor and they all just like kind of shrug and you try, you know, like you said, like some of the elimination term to like not have to figure out what's wrong. Like I mean, it feels like you spent more time coming up with a term that says like, yeah, that's happening to you. So it's just some of the, they're honestly some of the bravest people because like they just keep trucking day after day with some really painful, really serious symptoms that everybody just goes, I don't know, man, maybe like do some meditation, like calm down a little bit or stop eating fries. And you're just like, what? So now when it comes to like the individuality of the gut, we, you've touched on that there can be so many different issues going on personally within your gut that are going to be so different and they might present the same symptoms, but like it's so different than the person sitting next to you. I was wondering if you think that there is any universal true thing that we all should be doing to improve or help our guts be running at optimal? Like, should we all, is there any blanket type advice? Should we all be taking a probiotic? Should we all be eating leafy greens? Like, is there anything that you could say for all people that would optimize their gut? Yes. Which this is unique because, um, I'm the queen of saying it depends, (laughs) which is almost always the answer in nutrition, but, and people will hate me for this, but my number one recommendation is God, sit down and chew your food. That is one of the only like blanket recommendations we can give, right? Because this also goes back to the nervous system and fight or flight. I can 100% guarantee you that if you are stressed out, running around between errands or trying to come from the gym, or you immediately just finished a workout and your body is not switched into rest and digest mode, you're not going to have optimal digestion, regardless of whether or not you typically have symptoms. I feel attacked. (laughs) (laughs) Did I feel like you're attacked? 
attacking me right now. <laughs> Good thing I didn't know that about you before. So that was not supposed to be a personal attack. To be fair, th- listen, you can't do this 100% of the time. I always say this to my clients, especially because, again, a lot of people who have who are drawn to this, you know, our gym world and then also have health issues or gut issues, we tend to be a lot of type A people, right? One thing that I try to steer my clients away from is the all or nothing mentality of we have to be 100% perfectionistic about everything. To give an example, we're recording around lunchtime and I, because I had clients this morning, I have not eaten lunch yet. So right before we started recording, I did not take my own advice. I was standing in my kitchen and eating food and I was stressed thinking about, oh my gosh, what I have to do the rest of the day. It happens, right? But most of the time, especially if you are someone who deals with a lot of digestion symptoms, try to chew your food more than you think you need to. Try to chew your food enough so that you don't have to gulp down water or some other drink while you're eating because that does dilute your digestive juices a little bit. This doesn't mean that you cannot drink while you're eating, right? Because that's another question that a lot of my clients will ask me. And really try to minimize any stressful distractions that you have while eating. So like try not to check your work emails. Please don't watch the news or scroll the news on your phone. You know, I mean, everybody knows what sets them off. One of the things I really like to do is I'm a big reader. So like reading while you're eating, listening to an audiobook, a podcast, some like not EDM music, you know, anything that's going to help your nervous system shift into rest and digest mode is going to be beneficial on the food supplement side of things and all of that, there are almost no universal truths in terms of people who have gut issues because the gut issues are so variable that like if, for example, probiotics, right, are useful for a lot of people, but just like the gut microbiome, which is a very new field of research in the last, you know, 10, 20 years, every day we are learning more about different strains that we didn't even know existed five years ago, right? Or maybe even a year ago is if you prescribe what people used to say, oh, just take a broad spectrum probiotic that's got, you know, X amount of CFUs, which is colony forming, colony forming units of, you know, bacteria, That's an irresponsible recommendation now, because for people who have an overgrowth of bacteria, you're adding more fuel to the fire, right? And for people who have, for example, like candida, a yeast infection, you need to do a specific kind of probiotic in order to make sure that it's not fueling the yeast. For other things like H. pylori, there are specific probiotics that help get rid of H. pylori. Can they cure H. pylori on their own? No, don't. Let's hope no one thinks I'm saying that, right? But even something that would be as, quote, simple as a probiotic can make some people feel better, can make some people feel a lot worse. And the same thing with your question about like leafy greens, right? If somebody has severe, severe bloating and diarrhea and all these different digestive issues and stuff, eating leaky, leafy greens, especially raw leafy greens, might fe- make them feel worse, right? And so that's the really, really hard thing about gut issues is that even a lot of very, you know, healthy, nutrient-dense foods make people feel bad. And so they're like, well, what am I... Then it goes back to your friend, like, well, I'm just going to eat whatever the heck I want to eat. And like to heck with trying to find, follow these protocols because I was down to four foods and I didn't feel good then. I don't feel good now, but at least I can eat French fries, <laughs> you know? And what that tells me is it's not about the food for that person. Because if you can eat a wildly different diet and you're still having the same symptoms, the food is not the thing that's causing the problem. 
That makes so much sense. That makes so much sense. I, man, it's just, I love that advice too, to just like chew your food and sit down because I, it sounds so simple and no, we can't do it a hundred percent of the time, but you can check in with yourself on times that you might be able to, and then you'll sit down and be like, Oh, cause I know sometimes like I'm standing up uh, in my kitchen, my I'm waiting. I can't even sit down because I feel like if I sit down, my dog is going to start hitting everything <laughs> because she knows like I'm sitting down and now she wants to go out. It's like a, like a thing. So I'm like, well, I'll just stand here. She won't know that I'm not in the middle of something. I'm just trying to eat, which actually is in the middle of something. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Um, like we have these like different things where you're just like, okay, no, I could just go sit down and like relax for a couple minutes and do actually just eating because that is an activity that I have to do to survive. Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. I have to eat again. This is what I'm always saying. I'm like, oh my God, I would be so much more productive if I could just get over this hump of needing to eat three times a day. It's like ridiculous. So obviously Kelsey's dog is in charge of the her house. So that's good that everybody yeah. knows that now it's out there. It's out there. It's Harley rules. Like, okay. yeah. We knew. we knew, but now we know. So Dana, you use the terms neutral nutrition and weight inclusive care when it comes to your philosophy. Can you explain these terms and like how you use them with your clients? Yeah. So first I'll do neutral nutrition. So what most people know about nutrition, if they haven't done some kind of program or education or anything, or even if they have, is mostly just weight loss advice. I mean, to be honest, that's what it is, right? It's like, oh, eat this, not that, or make sure you're eating X amount of calories a day and you know, make sure you're in a deficit if you want to lose weight or whatever it is. Or if we're talking about macros for performance, make sure you have X amount of carbs and X amount of protein, and then we just fill in the fats from there, right? So the way that I use nutrition is breaking it down, like you guys said very kindly, into a very easily digestible way, haha, <laughs> poop puns. But so it's thinking about how can we use this in a way that is not going to be controlling, that's not going to be all or nothing, that's not going to be perfectionistic, right? It's thinking about things not in a good versus bad, yes versus no way. The same way that we had talked about leafy greens, right? Leafy greens, let's use them, right? In the dieting perspective, oh, eat as much of these as you want, unlimited, whatever you want. They're good for you, blah, blah, blah. You know, from a neutral perspective, it's okay. Leafy greens, what are the nutrients that are in there? Are, do you digest them well? If not, not a great food for you right now, right? That's something that your body's telling you is not going well. That doesn't mean that it's a morality judgment on you or on your digestive system, right? It just means that it's not working super well for you right now. And then from an education perspective, you know, the building blocks is a lot of what I do is I have to teach people to unlearn a lot of the nutrition information that they have come to me with because it's almost all dieting and weight loss advice. And if you want to learn how to engage with nutrition and how to fuel your cells from a molecular level and not bringing dieting and restriction back into the equation, we have to go back to the building blocks of, okay, what are my cells made of? What do I need for energy every day? Right. And so going back to I talk about this a lot with people who do macros, right? Because commonly in macros, we happen to be low fat if you're doing macros for performance, right? And then it's like, okay, every single cell in your body has something called a phospholipid bilayer. 
The second part of that word is lipid. If you don't eat enough fats, where are your cell membranes coming from? Where are your hormones coming from, right? Where is all this other stuff coming from? And again, it's not a morality judgment or anything. It's like, this is at a baseline, just what your body needs to survive and keep your heart beating every day. We're not even talking about going for a walk or going to the gym or trying to kill it in the gym, right? Those are like, we're talking about the prerequisites, not the 400 level class, right? So a lot of what I do is help people tangle or like untangle what are all of the food and uh, like nutrition and diet, like rules and shoulds that have been floating around in my head rent free for however many years. And then trying to detangle those and say, okay, where did this come from first? Right. And again, not a judgmental looking at this from a mindset of curiosity, right? As much as possible. Where did this come from? Right? Like, where did I learn this Two, Is this evidence-based? Like, is this real? Like does spinach actually have that vitamin in it? If that's something that I'm looking for. Right. And then even here's the neutral part, right? Even if something is evidence-based, that doesn't mean that it is applicable to your situation and it doesn't mean it's appropriate for your situation given your relationship with food or the health conditions that you have, right? So a lot of people will say, oh, you know, keto is great for, you know, blood sugar or whatever. You don't have any blood sugar issues. You don't have to be doing that. Moreover, if you don't have epilepsy or any kind of, you know, schizophrenia, autism, any other kind of mental health condition that's going on, that's what the keto diet was developed for in the first place. So if you don't have those, even if it's evidence-based, because there's a ton of research behind keto, that doesn't mean that that research is applicable to you. And if you have a complicated relationship with food, even if it is applicable to you, it might not be appropriate for you at this time in your life, right? So it's trying to kind of like Survey, survey the scene is a term we use in lifeguarding because I've been a swim coach for like 15 years. This is one of the things that we have to think about is like, okay, what are all the pieces that are going into this? And then how is this applicable to me? And then in terms of weight inclusive care, again, when you go to the doctor's office, a lot of the time, the recommendations that are provided to you or the type of care that is provided to you is made based on an assumption about your body size and your habits. So yes, ma'am. <laughs> so what I do is weight inclusive care to me means I don't cater or default recommendations based on your body size. There is no morality around body size here. I do a lot of education around disassociating health from body size, from a nutrition perspective, from a biological perspective. Kelsey's like, hell yeah. <laughs> right? And Here's the thing that's tough, right? Is taking the neutral perspective again. There is a ton of research out there that says it shows that being in a larger body is detrimental for your health. So they then assume based on that, that gaining weight is unhealthy and losing weight must be healthy. Show me the research where there's no one in a smaller body that doesn't have diabetes or doesn't have cancer or doesn't have all these other heart conditions and stuff, right? Just because you inhabit a larger body naturally does not mean that you're a lazy piece of shit, but that is what the medical system assumes for the most part, even if doctors aren't saying that, right? So what I try and do is to provide as safe, non-judgmental, inclusive space as possible for all people in all body sizes, race, races, ethnicities, you know, gender orientation, everything, even though like I'm a small straight size white girl, right? So 
it's my job to do the work to understand where the biases are coming from, unpack those for myself and make a safe space as much as possible for people who are coming to me, because I don't want anyone to ever think, Oh, I can't go to her because she's going to prescribe me weight loss because I'm in a BMI of whatever. And the BMI is bullshit by the way. But yeah, that's my small rant for today. One of probably 20 that I've already gone on. <laughs> Louder for the people in the back, girl. Yes. Louder <laughs> for the people in the back. I mean, listen, we've had a lot, a lot of stuff in that question, but I have literally been sitting at a table with girlfriends where one girlfriend was describing like intestinal issues and gut health issues and like saying that she was like in a lot of pain and really miserable. And I had another girlfriend sit right next to her and say, I know, but like, at least she'll lose some weight though. Mm-hmm. Like yep. really, that really is, that's a real thing that happened in the world. And that is sometimes I think really thinking when we're just sitting there, you know, discussing these things, really thinking about those ideas that have been living in our head rent free and all of that diet culture that comes along with just eating food to survive. It's just, it makes everything so much more complicated when you're talking about, you know, your gut health and solving gut issues. So it's, it's crazy, man. It's crazy out there. Honestly, Dana, I just want to say thank you for the work that you're doing. Seriously. That just like how you described that. I mean, like I, you know, I talked to you before we started about like finding people who are in your space and like shouting this, like, so like anti diet, like message and just like being body inclusive and body inclusive care and like how you're practicing that on a daily basis is amazing. And I just want to thank you for that because like so many of our women have, have talked about their experiences with working with nutritionists or going to the doctor and it being so disheartening because their experiences are not heard. Their lifestyle is not heard because like they're the person that is supposed to be listening to them is only judging them based on the size of their body. And it's so freaking problematic and it is so anti health and what you're there for and like how you can even express yourself, especially as a woman and especially as a woman in a larger body, being able to express what your experiences are without someone attaching some morality and assumptions about your lifestyle. Yeah. Well, thank you. You guys are super kind. I mean, I'll be honest, it was really, it took me a long time to find this niche and to unpack all of this stuff. I used to be a coach for one of the popular elimination diet programs that we have talked about on this show today. And when I started to realize that that program, more people than, I mean, I don't want to put a percentage on it, but a lot of people that were going through that program and reached out to me were like, I'm really glad that you said that this, you know, wasn't working for you and you're not doing this anymore because you saw a lot of your clients were dealing with disordered eating and, you know, all this stuff afterwards. It's not that the program itself caused that because I don't think I can legally say that. I mean, maybe I don't really give a shit, but (laughs) it's like so many people are dealing with these very complex issues and we can't approach it from a simple perspective. You can't approach these types of things that are 
27 layers deep, just like those 27 food sensitivities, you can't only go two layers deep, right? Like you need to start there We because for a lot of people, you can't go straight to the root cause, right? And most people, when they're coming to me, have already done so much deep digging. And it's like, well, now, you know, especially people who have gone through different protocols for like gut issues and stuff. Now they're like, but my relationship with food is in the toilet and I'm still having gut issues. And I feel like if I don't eat this way, then all my gut issues are going to come back. And now I'm realizing that my stress response and the nervous system and just how stressed I am about eating certain foods is causing me to have worse symptoms, right? So it's just like layer after layer after layer. And I find that even just being able to like, I'm so happy that, I mean, I've done so much, you know, so much like new learning and continuing education and take bring into account my own experience and all my clients and everything. And just being able to hold a safe and non-judgmental space for people is one of the best things that any practitioner can do. And it's really not that much to ask, (laughs) you know, and I really wish that people, you know, regardless of what your education level is about all of this stuff is just like, give people a space where they can feel heard and you listen to them and you validate them. And my God, don't gaslight them. Be like, oh, it's just all in your head. Because it's not. not. They're the only expert in the room on their body. Like the only, the only expert one. in the room. Who knows what's happening? And I, I, you know, when you had talked about um, like macros and stuff, and we've talked about macros on the on our, our previous episodes before, but I think some of the, one of the things you said that really rang true to me is I had a coach who was like really pushing me to be more consistent or precise with my macros, and like I had to really like sit down and. I'm super confident in how I feel and how food affects me. So like, I'm one of those people who can, I've gotten to a place where I can say like, no, this doesn't feel good, but like I require more fats in my diet. Like that's what, that's what my body like works better with a higher fat percentage or like in my diet than what was being prescribed to me. And I was like, so here's the thing. Like, I don't feel good there. And what was really getting affected was my hormones. My hormones started like getting all over the place. And I was like, well, why is my skin breaking out? Why are these kind of things happening that aren't normal? They're not really in my, like every month, how I'm feeling like they're not really in my normal range. And I'm noticing that. And I'm trying to peel back like where that's coming from. And for me, like what I'm eating is a, is a massive part of that. But like for a lot of people, like they're kind of taking the advice and then kind of going with like, well, that's what they told me to do. Well, my favorite part of, of what you said, Dana, was that just because it's true doesn't mean it's for you. And if you don't mind, I'm going to be stealing that and saying it to every person I come across. Because just because there's research to back up the claims of something being true, it doesn't mean that you're trying to negate it or that you have to find alternate research to prove that it's not for you. You yeah. can just straight up say, yeah, but that's not for me. Was that research done true. on you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's where the neutrality comes in, right? It's like, we can accept that X diet or X nutrient or whatever can be really helpful in therapeutic doses for whatever health condition. And we can accept that that's 
not applicable for me, or even if it is applicable for you. So, okay, let's, let's use an example about gut health, right? So there's a marker on the test that I do that's called anti-gliadin IgA, which basically is an enzyme that measures how well your body is doing breaking down gluten, gliadin, wheat, rye, barley, all the things, right? If I have someone who is an eating disorder client or severe disordered eating, and that number comes up high, where in a person who, if they don't have a lot of chronic dieting history and any of this stuff, we probably would want to take gluten out or at least minimize it because it is causing a reaction in the body, right? That is just objective data. Your body's not currently doing well with gluten. That doesn't mean you'll never do well with gluten again. It doesn't mean you have to be 100% gluten-free. But depending on how high it is, maybe we go get celiac tested. And then that's a different story. But again, if someone has an eating disorder and that number comes up high, you really think I'm going to put them on a 100% gluten-free diet? That's not appropriate for them right now, right? If someone is in that situation and they're barely eating anything or their binges are triggered by anyone telling them you can't keep this food in the house, that is not an appropriate recommendation for that person, even though there is a ton of research behind, yeah, going gluten-free can bring this number down. We need to think about other strategies to work with that because that is not ethically appropriate for that person. Imagine treating the whole person. Imagine. I just love you. <laughs> I, I'm serious. <laughs> serious. I love you. Oh my God. Did we become best friends? <laughs> Did we become best friends? That's just so important because, like, it's you're you bring up such an amazing point of like, yes, this has validity. Like, this is this would improve, you know, your health and would improve your symptoms. But like, we're looking at the whole person here, and like, what would actually improve you as an overall person, like, in how you're functioning on day to day basis, is really the most important thing. And like, in yeah, a super simplistic. You- how can yeah. you say this will improve your health if it will destroy your mental health? Exactly. That's not improving your health. Like that. Oh man. I love that's her. why we, you know, in a very simple way, we talk about this with workouts where we say like, I can tell you what the most effective like way to work out is, but the most effective one is the one you're going to show up for. So like I, I, no matter what, like I could tell you all of these other things that you could strength train that like using uh, metabolic conditioning would be really beneficial to you. But the actual most like the best thing for you is the one that you're going to show up for. Yep. Despite all the research. Yeah. This was amazing. amazing. And I want to let our listeners know where they can hear more from you. So can you just like tell them where they can find you after this? Yeah. So the main places you can find me are on Instagram. So I'm at Dana Monsies underscore CNS. My podcast is called wholehearted eating and Those are the two main places that I hang out. If you want to learn any more about like how you can work with me on gut health nutrition or, you know, body image or anything like that, all the links are on my Instagram, but you can also just search Dana Monsi's nutrition or realfoodwithdana.com. I'm everywhere. (laughs) Except TikTok. I'm not there. I know it's hard. It's a tough Uh, cookie to crap. (laughs) So definitely check her out guys. We did our best to cover some topics, but as you can hear, like she has so much more to offer so that we couldn't even get to in this 56 minute podcast. I know. I wanted to ask more things about hormonal stuff, but I was like, yeah. you like ran out of time, but maybe we'll have you back Dana. And like we can go on. I love this conversation. Oh, so good.
Thank you so much for listening to the Thick Thighs Save Lives podcast. If you'd like to join our movement, get in our free app, CVG Nation, available in your app store. We have an amazing community of women, coaches to help you with your movements, challenges, and we give away leggings daily in there. Rachel and I are in there every day, so it's a perfect place to get in touch with us. This podcast is made possible by Constantly Varied Gear, so be sure to check out ConstantlyVariedGear.com. Have an amazing week. Crush your goals.